Dirty History is produced by Muckraker Media, a nonprofit organization that I co-founded with Jordan Myers of the podcast That's BS. Our mission is to inspire lifelong learning by providing open access educational material across new media platforms. If you would like to learn more, support our efforts, or join the organization, you can do so at muckrakermedia.org. That said, if you value this show and podcast in general as an educational resource, please consider passing it on to another person. The best way we can spread is by word of mouth, so please consider subscribing and leaving a review on whichever platform you get this show on. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, wherever you're listening, please subscribe and review. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. In this episode, I sit down with history YouTuber Cypher of the acclaimed channel The Cynical Historian. With over 133,000 subscribers, he is a preeminent source for analytical history on YouTube. His episodes on historical subjects are meant to be insightful and provocative. Episodes range from series on based on a true story movies to a variety of video essays on common misconceptions of those studying history and interesting takes on historiography. We sat down to discuss a recent video of his titled New Media Frontier, The Scholarly Value of YouTube. The conversation, of course, was centered on the pros and cons and peaks and valleys of doing history on YouTube, with particular attention paid to demonetization of historical content, the pop history-academic history divide, and of course the oft-discussed comments section. I hope you find our conversation as fascinating as we did, and of course, if it made you think, let us know. The conversation doesn't have to end simply because the microphones aren't rolling. And with that, on with the show. I'm Thomas Thompson, and this is Dirty History. Today, I'm sitting down with Cypher from the YouTube channel, The Cynical Historian. Uh, thanks for coming on, man. Thank you for having me. So many of the people listening have likely heard of The Cynical Historian or watched some of your videos, but but for everyone else, I hope this serves as a good first impression. I, I asked you on the show because I want to respond to and discuss a video you recently uploaded called New Media Frontier, the scholarly value of his uh, of YouTube. Sorry, the video also doubled as a presentation, if I'm not um, mistaken, for at the conference for the National Council of Public History. Yeah, the national the NCPH had to uh, go digital because of uh, COVID and everything. So, it the upload that you saw was a re-upload. Like mm-hmm. the actual conference upload is still like unlisted. Um, but, uh, I didn't change much between the two. All right. And, and for anyone who wants to watch the video, we'll make sure that's in the uh, description of the show. So as I think this is going to be a term that's going to come up a lot in our conversation, and I want the listeners to have a working awareness of it. What exactly is public history? Uh, uh <laughs> it's actually a pretty difficult question to answer. Like, um, NCPH has its own definition um, that's basically trying to say that like museums are public history and they they tend to be very museum centric. Mm-hmm. Um, but public history is more um, 
writing history that's more publicly oriented, but not pop history. Um, you know, pop history is just kind of fun to read and not really meant mm -hmm. to advance scholarship in any way. Whereas public history is kind of like in between the two, you know, you have yeah. scholarly history that's very like, you know, academia focused and then um, pop history that's obviously, you know, completely focused on the public. So it's that happy medium or happy. <laughs> yeah. So would you say then that you pursue public history through your channel, The Cynical Historian? Absolutely, yeah. And, okay, so then I think the logical follow-up to that would be, what drove you to pursue public history on YouTube as a platform? Uh, well, so I didn't start off start the channel thinking, like, this is going to be an outlet for public history in that mm -hmm. I kind of uh, started it because I was dared to <laughs> um, by friends. Um, basically I was complaining, like, they don't have any kind of analytical content on YouTube. They need to have that. And it's like, well, you do it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I did, I think. Um, but the, it's evolved over time, especially as I've, um, matured and, um, you know, advanced in the actual history profession, you know, like, I didn't even start off calling it the cynical historian because I only had a bachelor's. It was called the uh, cynical cipher. Um, and the, uh, once I got my master's, that's when I changed it to, um, historian. And like throughout that process, I've become more and more yeah. like understanding the needs of public history. Okay. Well, some of the best things have started on a dare. <laughs> <laughs> So and a lot of bad uh, things. <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. That's true. So you you've been on the platform on YouTube for for some time. I mean, your channel has been active for what seven some years. Uh, yep, twenty thirteen. What what then in your experience seems to be the major hurdles between, you know, academia and ex and their acceptance of YouTube and other like platforms as a legitimate form of scholarship? Because you've you've had these conversations. What do you see as the major the major roadblocks well it, you know it depends on like what part of academia you're talking about like if you're referring to museums as academia they're they're not yeah um, no i'm not i'm mostly talking about you know universities college professors historians that are actually furthering the field yeah well i mean mu well, no, I, yeah I, I yeah you know what i mean <laughs> i mean my 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 dad runs a museum and yeah. he uh mentioned multiple and he would take great offense to uh not being called the scholar <laughs> um but the uh especially in terms of academia itself there's a technological barrier of course there's the uh the fact that like most historians in academia have like either been there since like before the internet or uh you know our profession is designed around kind of being Luddites. You know, we have our heads in the past. Mm -hmm. So it's really difficult to get a lot of historians to kind of get past that technological barrier. Yeah. Um, but that's just one aspect of it. And that, um, and especially with YouTube, that's a pretty high hurdle compared to like other platforms. 
which you actually see in um, NCPH because uh, they actually fairly well accept things like Twitter, Facebook, um, you know, all forms of social media that is like text based mm -hmm. or podcasting. Um, you know, they they have had panels on these topics for years, and when they do talk about video content, it's always talking about documentaries, yeah. specifically made-for-TV kind of documentaries. Um, so, like, that requires a crew, that requires connections, all that kind of stuff. And so the, YouTube has always been this kind of, like, weird outlier that, like, you know, if you're able to get past these hurdles, then maybe you can go and do it. And then it's like nobody in the public history profession, at least here in the United States, um, you know, has really made that leap. That's like this is literally the first time YouTube has been brought up as a topic um, at NCPH. I organized the panel um uh, but I wasn't the only panelist. There was mm -hmm. Tristan from Step Back History and Matt Beat from Mr. Beat. Um, yeah. And, like, part of that was just trying to uh, kind of legitimize YouTube in the eyes of NCPH. Mm -hmm. um, because it really is that, that forgotten stepchild of uh, social media. And it wouldn't seem obvious that it would be because the, the barrier to entry to be on YouTube is so incredibly low. All you really need is, what, a computer, a microphone, and some software. And if you're doing a perhaps a podcast, for example, the software you need is mostly already on your computer. If you have an HP, you have Audacity. If you have a Mac, you have GarageBand. So it, it it's not hard to have a YouTube channel or a podcast. But yet they seem, when I say they, I'm referring to academia too, definitely have accepted Twitter, because I've seen so many historians with Twitter followings. Yeah. There, there, there's something about YouTube that really academics that I've talked to kind of swear it off. And that's not to say that I haven't seen prof professional historians or uh, professors or whatnot on YouTube, but a lot of times many of those commentators are discounted. I know, well, like, uh, oh, go ahead. I would Sorry. also point out um, there's, there is definitely a social aspect to uh, YouTube being forgotten by academia. I was, you know, there's a, a lot that I talk about in that uh, in that video about how, like, YouTube is kind of a hostile space mm -hmm. for history. Though, what I'm kind of arguing with that paper is uh, that the more historians who come on and legitimize the platform, the less stigma there will be for history on the platform, you know, yeah, it's, it's that, uh, trying to get over that acceptance barrier. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, of course, you have YouTube constantly screwing up, demonetizing history and that kind of stuff. And then you have, uh, just the incredible amount of hate that's on the platform. Yeah. Um, so when you have that heady mix of, of problems, the platform becomes very uh, disregarded by academics. Okay, yeah. I, I definitely want to touch on, I think, what you're hitting at in, in talking about comment sections and demonetization. But before before we get there, I, I do want to establish that 
in that video, you made a, you made a really good point that really struck with me when you talked about YouTube as a as a sort of pre preliminary publication before working on a larger project, right? You kind of dip your toes in, you get a feel for it, and you say, okay, I might pursue this in a deeper, more serious project, so to speak. And, and that seems to make so much sense. And really, really, it seems to be like a democratization of knowledge. You say, I want to work on this project. Here is a preliminary go at it. And if the response is multiple thumbs down, dislikes, and comment section is full of you got this completely wrong, well, then you know not to pursue that in the way you have been. Mm -hmm. Would you agree that that is a benefit is also sort of a, a double-edged sword with the necessary steps of editing and peer review completely removed from the process that YouTube in being so easy to use with no real barrier to entry opens itself out up to creators putting out misinformation or completely disregarding facts? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can see... Uh... The uh, you can see that effect with a lot of the disinformation. I'm having trouble saying that <laughs> disinformation um, that is on the platform already. You mm -hmm. see a lot of like far right um, commentators who are like putting out. For instance, my f most famous video, the Ten Common Slavery Myths, was basically a direct refutation of such misinformation one thing to note here is that there's still a lot of journals and publications within academia mm -hmm. that are not peer-reviewed or significantly edited or anything along those lines you know it there's a whole continuum of publication on that yeah from like the american historical review where it's like the most prestigious uh, journal to get published in to like your local university's blog you know there's there's a whole continuum of uh of how rigorous the publication is and i would say that youtube is actually you know, a little bit more rigorous than like the uh university's blog because you get that instant feedback from the from the comment sections and the ability for it to be shared and sent around to people and i think YouTube really fill, fills a void for many people because scholarly journals today are so prohibitively costly that many colleges are not paying for them. I mean, Harvard, for example, is dropping a whole bunch of science journals, science journals, that is, that it can't afford. But scholarly journals themselves are tremendously costly. I mean, we I just did an interview with a uh, a man who was doing research on like open access and whatnot. And the numbers were astonishing, but that's not to say that YouTube is like this save saving grace, the end all be all. And, and there are some people that take that platform, you know, that technology is our savior, but then there's also the people who say it's, you know, a ghastly evil or whatnot. But back to your point on the mis misinformation, oh, disinformation. Oh, you're good. I figured you might take the position you did because I noticed that you take issue with journalists as historians on YouTube. Why do you think that is? Why is that? You know, obviously, I was originally talking to my peers, not to like the public. I just mm -hmm. decided to make it public. Yeah. Um, so take that position not as like all journalists are bad. Okay. Um, I'm 
kind of exaggerated there a little bit, but it's it's the kind of exaggeration you would see at a conference all the time. It's it's kind of just expected. Um, but there we're more talking about like sensationalism. Uh, for instance, I just recently uh, had a video blow up on um, the lost cause and the uh, you know, one of the things that I said in there was like sensationalist journalism ends up um, reinforcing the lost cause, mm -hmm. which um, to anyone who doesn't know what it is, it's a it's basically that standard like slavery is good and, you know, it's not the cause of the Civil War kind of bigotry. It's it's a full on myth and needs to be destroyed. But the problem is when you have journalists who find out about like some story that's interesting uh or like there's the 1619 project which has a noble cause of trying to reorient school curriculums um to be about like how slavery has influenced american history throughout mm -hmm. and really kind of expose those connections the problem is it's done by the new york times and so instead of saying, like, hey, slavery has been the primary influence on American history, they're saying it's the sole influence, mm, you yeah. know, and like that, like the American Revolution was to preserve slavery and things like that. And it's just like, in what world is that OK? Yeah. Um, so it's this idea that many times when a journalist or uh, or a publication would cover a historical topic, it lends itself to almost like this mythologizing, kind of like how like what Tom Brokaw did with the greatest generation. You know, you, you make martyrs and heroes <laughs> out of a single generation that completely ignore many of the issues that were there. I, I can get behind that. I can get behind that. So I guess maybe looking at a case, like a specific example would be helpful. Where, where do you stand on... I don't know, like a, like a Dan Carlin type, the history. The, the, uh, the I host really of... like Dan Carlin, yeah. Okay. And he notes almost every episode that he isn't a historian, which I think is helpful, but he's telling stories. Would you argue that he's doing something other than history? Does he fall into that pop history category? I think perhaps at first. Mm -hmm. um, but honestly, he's become more and more scholarly throughout the years. To the point that I'd argue he is a historian. Um, you know, being a historian is not about, like, what degree you have mm -hmm. or anything along those lines. It's about what you produce. Yeah. Um, you know, you make history. Um, and he... Uh, um, and many other podcasts like that um, bring about... Uh, fairly new interpretations in that and new interpretations are kind of the bread and butter of historians yeah. um so he's doing like it is pop history for sure but mm -hmm. like pop history is not necessarily a bad thing yeah it's just he's not trying to advance scholarship so it's pop history yeah um but it seems like he's elevating it because I, I feel like the way I've heard pop history used is almost on campuses, even uh, almost a derogatory statement. You know, they're it, just doing pop history. It is. Yeah, definitely. But you'll find even on campus that 
you know, some historians um, are already famous as like pop historians. For mm-hmm. instance, I have a professor um, who was actually on my um, on my defense committee. Uh, he uh, my comprehensive exam committee. I mean, he is a really famous uh, historian named uh, Paul Hutton. And he does pop history. Like, he writes pop history. You'll find a lot of narrative history is pretty much pop history. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet he gets tons of awards for it. He's well-respected in the profession. Yeah. He's had held, um, pretty high places within um, the Western History Association. So also he he's like the number one professor in terms of the number of students who want to take his courses. Like Mm -hmm. as soon as he retires, the history department at UNM is going to be uh, lacking for students. Yeah. And that, that that makes sense that someone can have that, that double life, so to speak, where they do that scholarly work and they also put out the pop history. And I I guess when I first entered college undergraduate in the first year and I'm wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and I I listen to hardcore history and I'm like well he must be like a preeminent historian he speaks with such vigor and I really buy into it and I'm learning so much from him and then only to realize that he is met with much disdain and scorn from some of my professors some would admit that he's doing good work he's furthering the public's understanding of history on a variety of topics so I'm really just I'm fascinated by Carlin as I that you are because he really bucks traditional wisdom. Hardcore history is on a new media platform. It's a podcast. And I note the differences between podcasts and YouTube, but episodes regularly extend beyond four or five hours. And it's just him narrating. There's no background music. There's nothing. It's just a guy talking about history for four to five hours. Mm-hmm. You spoke on the need of YouTube to be entertaining. Do you believe that becomes prohibitive, that need to hold the audience's attention because it shifts so quickly on YouTube? Absolutely. Though it's kind of a different thing from like Dan Carlin, who can just go on for like five hours. Well, you could certainly um, upload like podcasts to YouTube and plenty Mm -hmm. of people do. In fact, I think Dan Carlin actually does. But the uh, that's not the medium itself. That's kind of co-opting the medium the the medium is video and is also youtube right they, mm-hmm. the audience has a particular expectation when they come to these things and like any kinds of errs and ums or long breaths or any of that kind of stuff needs to go out like you're not people will click out simply because you went uh for a little too long yeah which is crazy to think because on making a podcast which this is what this show is i will purposely leave those things in to make it feel more naturalistic it's that fly on the wall effect where you feel as though you're in the room having that conversation you have friends who aren't really your friends and that said can you really do those kind of deep dives i can do on a podcast on a youtube video where i spend an hour or two talking about I don't know, I just did doing an episode on the White Slave Traffic Act. Can you do a deep dive for an hour, two hours on YouTube? Or is YouTube prohibiting a historian from really digging into the scholarship, really discussing the issues? Yes and no. 
So it's more of a cultural problem than mm. an actual like limitation of the platform itself. Okay. Um, but you know, you have to deal with the culture that you're in, right? Mm -hmm. um, as the name cynical and historian might imply, I believe in the cynical virtue of uh, defacing the culture. But, um, you know, you can't just go about flouting the culture and not expect to be bucked. Yeah. Um, so you have to devise ways of working within the culture while simultaneously trying to improve it. Mm -hmm. um, and so trying to have like a long conversation piece, you can certainly upload it, but probably not going to get that many views. So unless you're Joe of... Rogan, who tops <laughs> millions of views on a two hour, three hour conversation. True. But he also runs as a podcast as well. Yeah. Uh, I know that the videos themselves can be pretty fun, especially when you get some of the wackier ones. Yeah. But like uh, most people listen rather than watch. In fact, I have people who tell me in the comments that they listen to my videos and only listen, um, which surprises me because I don't really understand how you can watch some of this without mm -hmm. like the visual aspect because like. You know, I got footnotes on screen. I've got, um, you know, every time I might make a blunder in terms of what I'm saying, I'll put like a note on screen like, mm -hmm. you know, oh, I said 1848, but I meant 1846 or something like that. You know, it's like you can do that, but because of the rate that you need to upload to maintain presence on the algorithm and also how like many people would hate to just listen to would hate to uh to have to have to listen to all the errs nums and all that kind of stuff mm -hmm. those two things require a very specific kind of video yeah have you considered putting your youtube videos up as a podcast in addition to what you already do well i actually started the diatribe uh, and for your listeners uh i have a series on called the diatribe that's basically unscripted and more kind of open questions and that kind yeah. of stuff you know it can range from like here's a current political issue to like let's talk about periodization um but those were originally set up specifically as kind of like quick stuff that i can put together and then also put on as a podcast okay um but that didn't work out. Nobody was downloading the podcast, and I just stopped bothering. Fair enough. You you were talking earlier about the, dealing with the culture and um, and the idea that as a as the cynical historian, you are you're trying to what deface? You said the culture. If it, deface the culture. It comes yeah. from uh, the ancient Greek term "peripatetian to nomisma," which means uh, deface the coinage. Um, but it was a pun actually because nomos is custom they didn't mm -hmm. have a word for culture um but custom is pretty close yeah so that said i think we're now we're at the moment we've all been waiting for comment sections how do they play into this larger conversation because i i when i speak to historians when i when i go sit down with someone who is working at a university or something and i i discuss youtube as a platform or or even twitter or 
uh, Instagram or other social media uh, sites, the first thing that gets brought up is, well, those comment sections are pretty hostile. And is that really, you know, a true dialectical conversation or something like that? You know, it, mm-hmm. this idea that the comment sections are really scaring off some historians that I've talked to. How do they play into this larger conversation? Well, it's it's a huge and important part, but I also want to first off emphasize that the comment section isn't just hostile. Yeah. Like, there's so much good to be gained from that. Um, even the hostile comments, you can kind of see where there's pressure points. Like, for instance, before ever doing my channel, uh, you know, when I was back in undergrad, I knew that the lost cause was a thing, but it really took like years of seeing those comments before I finally decided like, this is a really big problem. And then I went from making a lecture about it for a class I was GAing to, uh, just turning that into a video. Mm-hmm. So, like, there's that bouncing back effect, right? You know, I have, I see the comments, I build something for class, then I make a video about it, and who knows where it goes from there. Yeah. Um, so, like, there's good to be gained even from the nastiness. Mm-hmm. Um, plus, you know, you get to see a huge amount of different perspectives as, uh, yeah. Carl Becker, um, a historian for, in, who was president in the AHA in like 1931, I think. Um, his speech was called um, "Every Man His, his uh, Every Man His Own Historian," um, and it was talking about how like the history profession really needs to interface with like the public and acknowledge that they have different perspectives than like what academia can foster and will uh, and that two-sided um, layman versus professional kind of mm-hmm. um, um, dynamic can actually build up the professional much greater. And I think the profession has stepped away from it in in so many ways that it has become hard to get past the fact that, yeah, the, the, the public can be pretty nasty. But, mm-hmm. you know, they're also the public. Yeah. We're here to make history, not just for ourselves, but for everyone. No, that and that I think that makes total sense. It makes me think about two things specifically. When you were talking, you really reminded me of uh, Marshall McLuhan. He has this idea called the medium is the message, right? Oh, yeah. And I, I feel like this is this could not be more true than in this debate between history on YouTube or just history in these journals or in the lecture hall, if you relegate worthwhile his- historical scholarship into those journals, if, if we live by this credo, the medium is the message, the message that you're sending then is it's this prohibitive thing that's for a select few of people, select few people. And then we complain about schools not transferring historical knowledge to students and most Americans can't pass a citizenship test and they don't know American history and things like that. I feel like many of those problems around educating people in history could be solved simply by putting more worthwhile historical scholarship on YouTube. And it's not without its problems, which brings me to the second point. 
do you look at the comment section as useful information for you because you can see those pressure points and you, you say, oh, th there's something there. People seem to be getting really angry when I mention this. I'm going to do a whole episode on it. Yeah, there's that. There's also just kind of like, um, for instance, I put out a, uh, like I had to make some lectures for my class and I just like narrated it into a microphone and then put the slides up. And so I released one of those lectures today um, and specifically asking folks like, hey, what could I do to improve this lecture and like maybe I'll turn it into a documentary. Mm -hmm. um, and so I've gotten a bunch of things of like, well, because it was on uh, World War II, um, it was my American history class. So like it, it was week nine. So it was World War II. Um, and so I've got people going like, well, you didn't talk about like the invasion of Norway or freaking um, like, what about all these events over here? It like, there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah. Okay. So how does that affect the uh, narrative? How can, like, how is it important? Um, and let's have a conversation about it. Like I'm, I'm literally can pull up uh, conversations on that that are happening right now on my channel. Yeah. Um, and, like, that's the kind of feedback... You, you know how back in college people have those feedback forms and there's always mm -hmm. that one question that the professor will ask? Well, imagine having that kind of feedback on every single um, lecture, on everything you talk to the class about. Like, that... You don't have to take that feedback. You don't have to think that, like, the students are somehow more knowledgeable than the teacher mm -hmm. but oftentimes they'll have something that like you didn't think of or you didn't know you know like that there is so much to be gained and so i actually do read most of my comments yeah because if you look at the the trends in comment sections or in videos that get views and likes you can pretty much you can pretty much strengthen yourself it's your own education in which and what mm -hmm. people respond to and what they don't respond to and what they really need to know more about and don't. And and there are limitations. Like you said, you're receiving a lot of comments about this World War II video. At the same time, I would be like, if I was in your shoes, I'd probably say something along the lines of, this was one fucking lecture. Of course, it's, there's going to be some blank spaces. I, I got to <laughs> fill it in later. I, I can't cover everything in 13 minutes or else you would hate me for it. Because then yeah. you would say, well, you just glossed over this instead of not covering it at all. So... I understand the struggle, but I can also see how it would be incredibly useful. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, we're, and, we're... and like that's most comments on uh, like on this, for instance, are not saying like you didn't cover this adequately. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're more saying like, hey, you could add this. Yeah. Um, you know, they're it's constructive criticism. And that's uh, fantastic. And that's the kind of comment section I want to foster. But, uh, you know. It's really difficult sometimes, mm -hmm. um, especially when you are entering like a very hostile space already. Yeah. And so that's, you know, where the nastiness of the comment section is. For instance, on that video, I've already had one person trying to argue that Nazis were actually socialists. Um, there is inevitably going to be some sort of nastiness and you have to learn how to deal with it. Um, you know, it's, and I think it's not just that we should shun youtube simply because of the nastiness mm -hmm. but work to improve it yeah because it's not like everything in history is uncontroversial i mean i've done episodes on um 
Japanese on uh, like uh, brothels during World War Two in in mm. Korea and Korea. Japan and that Comfort and woman. that and that uh, definitely brings up a lot of debate, especially when it's a heated topic today. When there's not a consensus, when some people still deny things or some people accept things, it's yeah. it's a very well, tough situation to be in. A lot of the time, it's not so much that there isn't a consensus. There's just not a consensus among the public. Mm. So there, it's more of a public relations problem with the history profession because yeah. for instance when it comes to like what i said on the lost cause video even though it's um got a huge amount of people angry it's this that typical like you're trying to bash on the south yeah. um you know it's not people who have a valid opinion mm -hmm. um you know that they are trying to just what they're trying to do is justify bigotry so that is not a valid opinion yeah and that's something that the history profession is very good at sorting you know we, we have huge debates on topics for instance the causes of the civil war are definitely not there's no consensus on what the cause of the civil war is but there is absolutely consensus about it is rooted in slavery yeah it's just it's not about whether or not the civil war was about slavery it's how Mm -hmm. um that's the debate so the public might it, there might be a lot of people in the public who uh deny that yeah but ultimately that denial of history doesn't matter but we do need to face it yeah that, that, that i would say that's definitely important and when, when you're looking at and we're doing topics that engender that kind of perhaps it's bigotry bigotry or um perhaps you're doing something on the holocaust and you have holocaust deniers or you're writing about any number of genocides in history and you have people who deny it or take a different side and whatnot how where do you where do you stand on moderating comment sections to kind of try to remove hate speech or things like that in those heated contexts well especially um i am uh, I have a strict policy, bigots get banned. Okay. Um, no spreading hate in my comment section. Anything How do that you police is... that, though? So I have certain keywords that mm. I have because uh, these people tend to use um, certain words. Yeah. It's uh, important to not give away those words because... No, uh, I, yeah. Don't yeah. give away the trade secrets. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it's... Also, I... Just read most of the comments. Um, yeah, you'll see a lot of people who uh, want who get mad and then like threaten me. That's a that happens a lot. Um, although hilariously, almost none of them are articulate. Have you um, have you received have you received any death threats before? Oh yeah, that's like a uh, like weekly occurrence. I was amazed the first time I ever received a death threat. I'm like, wow, I didn't realize someone felt as strongly about this as they <laughs> obviously do. But yeah, it, it's this, it, there's a lack of articulation in most of the death threats I've ever received. And uh, would you say the same for you? Definitely. Um, though I have had a few credible death threats, as in they're like looking up personal information and mm -hmm. using it to, you know, they're like literally threatening my home address. Oh. Um, like, that's terrible. Yeah, well, that's the internet. Yeah. Uh, and I, Well, some of my favorite um, people that 
really stand up. I would, I guess, I would define them as polemicists. They involve, they get themselves involved in this contentious debate. And I, I've seen some examples of people's phone numbers being found out. And they're getting texts in the middle of night, and mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's. I would say it's disappointing, really, when you're discussing ideas and then it resorts to this threatening and violence and bullying to defend it. Because obviously they they don't have a solid position to take or else they would take that position instead of resorting to threats of violence. That's why I believe strongly in moderating the comments, um, not just in terms of banning people, but deleting comments that are potentially hateful as well. Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know... I'm not going to ban somebody for trying to argue that the, that like slavery wasn't the cause of the civil war, but I am going to delete the comment. Okay. Um, because, uh, you know, it's, they may not be bigots. Like they they may not actually be espousing bigotry. They may just be misinformed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so trying to, figure out who should be banned, who should just be deleted, whether or not the comment should stay up. There's a whole process and it's up to every YouTuber to kind of like figure it out themselves. I mean, some, some uh, people like really believe in the whole like, um, light sanitizes everything kind of thing, you know, so they don't moderate at all. And then you see comment sections degenerate as they start, bickering amongst themselves and uh you know basically going uh, basically seeing it's okay for this person to say this kind of stuff so i'm going to keep i'm going to say it too yeah um and that's how hate can spread real easily on youtube um without good moderation yeah and this is a contentious debate right now especially in the last two or three days with our our i mean our president is now engaging in a debate about you know, moderating and um, fact checking and where it stands in free speech with the idea that what the moderating on platforms like Twitter or YouTube, for example, unfairly target conservative voices and whatnot is the is the argument. And Mm -hmm. I think you kind of you 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 touch on it, but not directly. It's kind of a tangential thing. You 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 talk about demonetization. And and before we really get into demonetization, could you explain um, to the people listening exactly what that means if your if your video has been demonetized? So um, YouTubers, once you hit a certain threshold of viewership and subscribers, and that are allowed to partner with YouTube, and therefore you get a cut of the uh, revenue from ads. And so that's YouTube's entire business model is trying to run ads. Um, so when they decide um, that an, a uh, video is not suitable for advertisers, then they probably don't want to um, support that video either mm-hmm. um, because they're no longer getting that revenue. The, the whole idea of, of uh, demonetization is that uh, there's been some problems in the past like accidentally monetizing ISIS videos which caused a thing called the adpocalypse a few years ago. And basically they started clamping down on content that could be potential, that could potentially drive advertisers away from the platform. So the thing with demonetization isn't just about money. Mm -hmm. Uh, It 
is also about suppression because a when a video gets demonetized, oftentimes YouTube doesn't want to promote that within the algorithm because of uh, they're not making any money from it. There's tons of anecdotal evidence of this, but the problem is YouTube keeps denying that that exists. So mm-hmm. we can literally only go off of each other's statistics since YouTube is famously opaque about its uh, policies. Okay, so you bring up a lot of interesting points there, and demonetization beyond money. Like, if, you, if you're if you flagged as a demonetized video, does that, have you noticed on your videos that are demonetized, has that affected where you fall in the algorithm and listenership? Like, is there a graph you can look at and say, here's my listenership, then I get demonetized, and look at that downward trend now? Absolutely, I can... Um... Like in the video that we're discussing, the uh, media frontier thing, um, I show the graph of the slavery video, for instance, the slaves missed video. It got demonetized for merely a day, 24 hours, I think, mm-hmm. um, before they manually reviewed it and remonetized it, luckily. But by the time that they remonetized it, it had lost all momentum. Um, yeah. And it, it was a very stark contrast. It, you know, you, I was getting like 100,000 um, views a day. And then suddenly it co- drops to like 2,000. Yeah. You know, that's a 98% drop in viewership. Uh, I'm making up the numbers there. So don't quote me on it. But um, I, 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 I can see I, the I graph in the too. video, though. Yeah. Did, did, now, YouTube flatly denies that right that mm-hmm. it, okay but i i've seen i've seen many videos in which they they show the the graphs and whatnot and it, it seems like the trend is there but how many of your videos have been demonetized if you don't mind me asking uh well it fluctuates because Fluctu- every once in a while they decide oh we were actually wrong to demonetize that like for the longest time one of my like biggest bugbears on on something that had gotten demonetized was they had demonetized my veterans history video um you know a pretty personal video for me mm-hmm. um and like also something that clearly veterans like because wow the comment section has been like wonderful on that video but like literally the video about me complaining about that demonetization got mm-hmm. more views than the actual video. That's how I originally discovered you. That's the first episode of the on veterans your, one. The your response to the vet. Did you did you do a diatribe episode on? Yeah, yeah. That's the first it's, video I think I've I actually watched taken from it you. down because uh, getting to a point they remonetized it specifically because I was getting some traction. Um, in fact, like I think. It was one of the, like, drama alert or one of those terrible, like, drama channels Mm -hmm. retweeted something of mine. And then YouTube realized, uh, like, oh, wait, we just demonetized... Because the other one that I was really hitting them hard on was uh, they had demonetized my history of feminism. Which I'm guessing was simply because they were expecting it's YouTube. If you talk about feminism, it can't be... You can't be... You know, it can't be good. (laughs) Um, and yet 
they did eventually remonetize both of those videos, but only after like six months of it being demonetized. In fact, this might have happened, if I remember correctly, it might have happened during VidCon when I was literally talking directly with some of the people responsible mm -hmm. for it. So um, do so they provide, when you, because I, like I said, I, I'm not really active on YouTube. I have a podcast, so I'm, you know, mostly focusing on Apple and Spotify and Stitcher and things like that. But do, do they provide a reasoning as to why your video is demonetized or you just get a notification that says, hey, you're demonetized? Yeah, no, it's it's straight up like, we have manually reviewed your video and we are sorry to report that this does not meet our guidelines or something along those lines. It's like that has the to be most frustrating. robotic text possible. Even when you, like, they have things in terms of uh, being able to get with, uh, and I heavy air quotes, speak to a technician through chat yeah, or through email, and it is almost always a bot. Um, like, the most, like... Obviously, like uh, there's another problem with demonetization called sneak demonetization where they kind of uh, they don't do any kind of manual review or it might have been manually reviewed in the past. And then suddenly, like a year later, they just decide, no, nope, um, this is demonetized by manual review. It's like, when when did that happen? How? Yeah. And I have tried to contact them about that. And you always get like, well, um, would you like us to re, re to review it? It's like, no, I don't want it to be reviewed. I want to know how and why it got re-reviewed again. Yeah. Like, that was made very clear in the previous email. Why aren't you addressing what I said? Mm -hmm. And now, let me admit, I, I, I'm, totally, I'm not anti-demonetization. I think it has its uses. I mean, you don't want to mm -hmm. see a guy who's building a YouTube empire on a channel dedicated to Holocaust denial. But... You mentioned a case in which someone essentially made a YouTube documentary on Holocaust denial, and they got demonetized. Mm -hmm. It's actually but, still it's still demonetized. Oh. Uh, the problem there wasn't just that it's demonetized; it got removed from YouTube, and a strike was placed on his account for hate speech. Even though he's trying to expose, so to speak, hate speech by looking at it under a microscope. Yeah. I mean, it, it's like it, uh, it's uh, called um, appropriating legitimacy. Like, it's so obvious what he is saying mm -hmm. just from like the title, appropriating legitimacy. Like, he's talking about like these hateful organizations. For instance, there was the the uh, organization for historical review, which was a Holocaust denial organization but just from the title it sounds very legitimate yeah um and they published journals and had all that kind of stuff in fact you'll find a lot of historians who like to collect those uh journals just to kind of have in the background and laugh at it yeah um you know it's one of those kinds of like um look at these idiots who are trying mm -hmm. to appropriate legitimacy yeah um and Yet, YouTube was incapable of seeing that difference. The the video, the re-upload of the video, once the strike was finally taken off of his account and they officially apologized for it, to his face, by the way, um, <laughs> like, in, like, I was in that uh, meeting, so, yeah, they, they literally, like, the, the head of community guidelines apologized. Um, but it is still demonetized, and age-restricted, huh. which 
I kind of understand, but at the same time, when you're age restricting it, that's saying that it is no longer educational. And mm. like, this is kind of really pertinent education. Yeah. No, it, it seems like a slippery slope because the way it seems like to be the justice, so to speak, the way it's meted out is it, it definitely seems like a blanket s statement. And it seems like it's kind of pushing under the rug hate speech or even discuss a discussion of hate speech. It seems if I was to hear that story, which I am now, it, it would swear me off wanting to do a series on Holoca Holocaust deniers and really looking at where that comes from it, 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 in this desire to remove videos that are hurtful you are removing a desire to discuss those things that mm -hmm. are hurtful which takes away a whole field of scholarship yeah absolutely um like some of the uh, like i study american violence that's my actual um subject and like i just can't touch a lot of the stuff that i study Mm -hmm. without fear of being demonetized or possibly worse you know like i want to talk about uh mass shootings i want to talk about like lynching and um vigilantism and that kind of stuff but i can't mm -hmm. um not like i get freaking not being able to do lynching is more about like it's a visual medium what do you show when you're talking about lynching yeah uh, not exactly something you want to see but like Mass shootings, on the other hand, I can get a bunch of stock footage of, like, some guy with a gun and talk over that and talk about, like, mass shootings. And that's – I can make a video about that and make it entertaining and make it, uh, you know, fit what the culture of YouTube would want. But YouTube guidelines prohibit me from doing so. Yeah. No, that's 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 definitely a struggle. It's, it's why you got to come over to the podcasting game. There's so much freedom. I, I just did an episode on the um, on the San Ysidro, the McDonald's shooting in 1984, and how a cool episode on the conversation around mental illness and gun violence in America. And I, I'd never once worried about community guidelines or getting banned. Now I have run into problems on Facebook where I've posted mm -hmm. uh, like photos or I've made a post about a certain topic and my account gets flagged and is currently as we speak it's currently flagged with a risk of being unpublished now i've hasn't ha haven't had this problem on twitter or instagram because everything's cited i say where i get the photo from and you know any information i use but it, it's it's tough to talk about those things that are seen as vulgar or violent or I guess what's the word I'm looking for scary for the for the general public and I guess that brings me to my next point when bringing something that's I'll use your your terminology based on a true story to the public <laughs> oftentimes um people get things wrong or studios get things wrong and the reason I got mm -hmm. thinking about this is because in our discussion, it seems like YouTube is almost a giant content network that just happens to preside over a collective of shows that they really don't own, but they have almost complete control over. I mean, if YouTube decided tomorrow to remove your channel, they, I mean, is there anything stopping them? No, not really. Okay. Um, I mean, like, obviously, I have backups. So yeah. It's not like I could be completely removed, but like, the, for instance, there was a pretty famous uh, incident recently uh, with a channel called Monkey Jones. 
Um, and, you know, he was putting out edgy content for sure. And there's there were some problems, of course. But, like, you know, it wasn't anything that was actually um, against community guidelines. It was just that it was right there on the edge. Mm. You know, he's, like, making fun of a mass shooter. And so, therefore, they can't tell the difference between satire and, you know, honest, like, appraisal. Yeah. Um, like, I, and I get how that can, uh, that edge between satire and reality can, can really be troublesome. Mm-hmm. Um, but they completely removed his channel and he has no recourse. Like, he is off of YouTube now. Yeah. No, and that's that's definitely scary, especially for uh, speaking from my experience. The whole idea of the show is discussing those things that are transgressive and on the fringe. And I mean, the tagline is discussing the dis- disgusting. And I have so many friends who say, "Tommy, why haven't you got on YouTube yet?" It's because I'm I'm generally fearful that if I put out an episode on, I put out an episode on what, like sex trafficking or uh, the I've followed the use of trophies in some places. And yeah, you, I run that through time and I trace that behavior into its most banal forms. And I, I'm fearful that some of those more edgy videos would definitely be monetized, demonetized, or I'd be taken off of YouTube. And if I think I'd be taken off of YouTube, I don't see why I'd want to try and dip my toe in it in the first place. All that said, I wanted to transition over because I know we're running a little short on time. I want to keep you too long. You have a whole series on your channel called based on a true story where you look at films or um, is it just films or do you do anything else like a few tv shows but like it's very uh, like i very much try to avoid that because uh you know there's just so much more for a tv show to to talk about they're also extremely limited in terms of what they can do accurately because it seems like you really take issue with most films that say it's based on true events or based on a true story well so that uh i i've actually been trying to combat that perception because uh honestly i like i have an entire playlist on the channel that's uh the ones that i consider good and it's Mm -hmm. about half of the episodes actually so like yeah all films are going to have some sort of problem like Obviously, like I make mistakes on my show all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the great things about YouTube is that you can actually like annotate where you made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Um, but like there's a difference between, you know, oh, they didn't get the right tanks and Patton to like, um, you know, uh, I just was working on, um, a review of Bugsy, for instance, and it's like, Wait, you didn't even show his wife? Mm. Uh, and then you make it seem like he went into isolation in 1947 through 48, even though he didn't do that until the late 1960s? Yeah. Like, that's a, that's a narrative problem. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, that's a problem with their storytelling. So I'm, I'm less concerned with, uh, like absolute accuracy as so many people think i am um and i'm more concerned with the narrative okay um you know it's it's about can hollywood tell these stories 
um, you know, if they're going to claim that it's based on a true story, then they better base it on a true story. Yeah. Um, it's it's the it's the fudging of whole timelines that really get me. Like the one that the first time I was really concerned with the historical accuracy of a film, and like thought about it for a while, and was like, how could they ever think to do that? Was in Bohemian Rhapsody when they give Freddie Mercury an AIDS, um, uh, yeah, test. They, Years before he actually tested for AIDS. I mean, he didn't know he had AIDS at Live Aid, if I'm not mistaken. So there is kind of... Um, so one biographer claimed to have heard from um, somebody who knew him at the time. She didn't give her source. And um, it's incredibly contentious. And she even admits that it's contentious in the book. Yeah. But that... He might have known in 83, mm -hmm. which is before 84, obviously. Yeah. Um, but the one thing that's for sure um, oh. that the movie gets incredibly wrong is that he admits to having AIDS like right after um, the concert, which is 84. He didn't admit to it to... Um, his bandmates until like 87 um, or 88. Yeah. And from that point onward, he didn't have any uh, other partners than two partners. Mm -hmm. um, this German actress and his closest um, boyfriend, I can't remember the name of the guy, but like um, who also died of AIDS. Both of them ended up dying of AIDS. Um, but, or complications, you don't die from, yeah, direct, obviously, um, the, uh, but the way that the movie portrays it is basically, oh yeah, he's super promiscuous and he knows he has AIDS. So therefore he basically knows that he's killing people. Yeah. It, it's, um, it's the, the entire changing of someone's life dynamic for the sake of, a, a story which yeah time compression which is another thing because originally the first video i saw you do of um based on a true story was around the death of stalin because i was oh, right yeah. around the time after i saw it in theaters and i thought it was hilarious i actually really enjoyed the movie and then i watched it from you and i'm like ah shit he just ruined that movie for me <laughs> <laughs> well i think a lot of the the anger because i get a lot of angry comments of like you just want 100 percent accuracy uh, you know and I think a part of that is because I kind of am ruining it for people. A lot of, it, heck, I get that on ones that I'm very positive about. What I think a lot of them are angry about is that it's kind of ruining it for them because they're realizing there's some serious flaws with these movies. Um, you know, and honestly, I think Hollywood has been getting progressively better in that regard. Like, Death of Stalin was one of those ones where, like, there was just a couple of scenes that were just truly terrible, you know, and they weren't even funny, right? Uh, well, okay, the 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 mass execution in in Siberia, that was pretty funny, you know. And they're going like, hail Stalin or whatever, and then it's like Stalin's dead, freaking, uh, whatever. The guy's name starts with an M. I can't remember his name, um, you know, and. Uh, and they're like, okay, well, and then continue executing, yeah. right? Um, like, that's funny, but not true. But it mischaracterizes like the where 
the Soviet Union was at the time this story was happening because those mass executions just weren't occurring at that time. Yeah, exactly. It was it, like those things really did happen. Yeah. But uh, prior to World War II, like, and to not be able to differentiate between two decades, one's 1938, one's 1953. If you can't differentiate between those time frames, you probably shouldn't be telling that story. Mm -hmm. But the really big thing that kind of pissed me off was the massacre of uh, civilians yeah by uh guards during the uh during the funerals mm -hmm. like they and it's n not played for laughs at all it is yeah, done no. perfectly seriously and later on they claim that it was 1500 people dead like the bbc for instance claimed that there was a, a stampede that killed at least 100 people um that's not backed up by soviet sources but there is um there are um, actual stories of a stampede. There's no body count that we know of. Yeah. But and the BBC not only claimed that it was a hundred on one day, like four days later they claimed it was five hundred. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, journalistic sensationalism. You know that it's one of the key problems that uh, that historians have to deal with. And when you actually read firsthand accounts. Yeah, it doesn't sound like anybody, probably nobody actually died, but we don't know, right? And we that was that exact, that and that was the and, exact point you made where I was like, yeah, this movie's ruined because I can understand if you someone's nitpicking, and I'm like, okay, I really don't care that it's not period accurate costumes or shoes, but and and you don't do any of that. It's it's the when they when they actually screw up huge chunks of time and throat patchwork it together and make yeah. something that happened in the 30s happen in the 50s something that didn't happen at all make up numbers that's just, that's too far at that point because then you're changing history to service your story when the story's already there because it had happened just yeah. follow it as it had happened the story itself is interesting enough and to connect to the like the overall topic of this um like clearly history can be entertaining mm-hmm like telling a good story can work. In fact, I've got a bunch of videos on, like I literally have a playlist of videos that I liked, uh, of movies that I liked, right? Mm -hmm. There's there's a ton of them. Um, what was the last one? I can't remember. <laughs> well, I guess you didn't like it too much. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to remember what the most recent one is. Uh, oh, 1917, of course. You know, like... And for instance, I also can go after movies for other reasons than like, for instance, I'll have a review of Midway coming out and it's like that movie is extremely accurate, but they didn't pick their battles. They don't they they failed to do a good job of telling a story yeah. like this is about narrative. Mm -hmm. History is the story of us like, yeah. you know, when it comes to criticizing Hollywood or anything along those lines i am trying to look at the narrative um that's the ultimate thing because that's what history is right yeah so who cares if they didn't get the uniform right like i i'm fine with them like doing i don't know freaking coriolanus where it's happening in like um soviet russia right um mm. like there's problems with Coriolanus, I guess, but I, I 
couldn't be bothered to research it. <laughs> yeah. But uh um but the uh it's more when... it's not about like the trappings, the visual trappings. Mm. It's about the story itself, how yeah. they're telling that story. And that's also what makes a good YouTube video is mm -hmm. if you can manage to maintain that storyline like one of the things that i tried to keep is this idea uh, uh it's uh comes from the south park creators i can't remember their names matt stone um, trey parker yeah and one of their rules of storytelling is like it always ends with a meanwhile but you know like there's there's the story always has a conjunction yeah um and that's something that i try to do in my videos mm-hmm so it like I, I some of the hardest times in terms of writing script will be just literally sitting there going like how do i connect these two yeah <laughs> no no i totally get that yeah that's that's that's, that's a definitely a tough part and to, to one of your earlier points when they do get those period details right i totally nerd out because then i'm just really excited the fact that oh, they, yeah. they got down to the very you know uniform and i get excited there but uh i guess before we go those who are listening now who may not be subscribed to your channel or have watched your videos before, do you have a place you would suggest they start maybe to get a real taste for what you're all about? Um, well, I have a uh, playlist of like my favorite episodes. Um, it's more just my favorites, so yeah. it's not like um, meant to be like this is where you should start, but uh, I guess it's a good place to start. So, all right, so I'll, I'll link that... Um... Of course, I'll link to your channel below, and I'll, I'll link that playlist as well. And uh, if people want to stay up to date with you, where can they find you on social media or anything like that? Do you? Um, I've got uh, Twitter. It's uh, I think it's just Cynical History, and uh, um, with an underscore in between the uh, cynical and the history. Um, and uh, I have a Facebook. I can't remember the actual title of it. And of course, on YouTube. All right, great. I'll link uh, all of those below. Um, thanks for doing this again. This has been great. Ooh, uh. All right, we'll talk to you later.